Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of Paratalk and on this episode I'm joined by the one and only Mr Kieran O'Keefe. Hello Kieran. Hello, how are you? I'm all right, I'm all right. Uh, quite excited to uh, uh, actually get you on an episode because I hear that, uh, you've been very busy recently with a, a brand new book. Yes, yeah, in fact the book came out today and we've been working on it for a number of years, a book called Ghosted and essentially it's about the scientific research that myself and a number of researchers have been conducting over the last four to five years call ourselves the global ghost gang and we represent a spectrum of beliefs everything from uh, dogmatic believers to cynical non-believers and everything in between but you know there's a, um, a number of us and I kind of see myself in the, in the middle of that spectrum of belief but we've we've done a lot of scientific research and published it but it remains in scientific academic journals and what we thought was quite key is there's a lot of interesting stuff here that ghost hunters can learn from so let's make it more accessible and put it in book form and that's what you essentially get that's interesting that's kind of like a, a kind of like a, a workshop manual for anyone that's sort of going out there and investigating <laughs> the unknown really it's kind of yes yeah i guess it kind of is i mean it's 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 not telling you how you should ghost hunt but because you're hearing a number of different voices you're going to be hearing advice and kind of the science behind some of the gadgets that ghost hunters would use and whether they're effective or not. But also you might hear some voices coming through the book, um, not literally, but in terms of um, this kind of spiritualist approach and the yeah. use of mediums and whether or not mediums are appropriate. But and that's what I mean. You get, you know, a spectrum of beliefs and therefore voices coming through the book so i guess on the one hand yeah it is kind of a manual you know you're, you're basically getting a glimpse into the current state of play when it comes to scientific understanding or lack of understanding about ghosts so okay so for those uh out there that aren't well i'd be very surprised i think uk-based sort of people into the panel kind of know who you are because obviously you know uh, the whole most haunted uh you were kind of the the logical one on there that would look at evidence and think, you know, let's look at this from a, a little bit more of a, you know, a logical stance. But how did you get involved with the paranormal uh, to start with? What what kind of sent you down this road where you are today? I guess the road started very early when I was a boy and I was fascinated by ghost stories. Um, you know, I was reading M.R. James, H.P. Lovecraft, but also more contemporary authors such as Stephen King, James Herbert, and then a little bit later, Clive Barker. And I was reading these at age seven, eight years old, to the extent where my parents were genuinely concerned about my reading material. Um, but that was an initial seed, fascinated by the fiction side of ghost stories. And then later on, kind of a very, very um, young teenager, uh, it was the time for Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious oh, yeah. World and The Unexplained Magazine. So all of that was a great show on the BBC at the time, Sapphire and Steel as well, which, you know, all of that was was around me. And I was fascinated by all of that kind of weird and wonderful world. And then the Ghostbusters came out in 1984. And yeah. I was 13 years old. And that was it. That was the turning point where I said, no, that is what I want to do. I want to be 
Dr. Peter Venkman and I want to have a proton pack and I, I want to have the fancy car and all of that. And, and that really was the turning point in saying that's what I want to do. But the reality of it set in very quickly when I started to do A-levels and kind of higher examinations when I was 17, 18 and then going to university that the reality of, of what I saw on Ghostbusters just it is not there. Yeah. at all but it still planted that amazing seed of interest in parapsychology generally so when i did my undergraduate degree out in the states i ended up doing a parapsychology thesis as part of my undergraduate degree at the institute of parapsychology where the science started back in the early 30s at mm. duke university you know, my university at the time in america said to me we're happy to entertain you doing a thesis in the paranormal. Those were their exact words. Yeah. However, we're, we're not in a position to supervise you. So if you can find a supervisor, then please go ahead. And I traveled down to the Institute of Parapsychology and did a, did a thesis there and then did a master's where I focused on psychic detection and then a PhD in parapsychology with Professor Richard Wiseman. Um, and that's really my journey. So it's, an, it's a very academic journey where the seed of ghostbusters was constantly running through so when we when we talk about um the paranormal haunted houses ghosts uh and all that kind of stuff um you had a, quite a what i would say quite an important role in the television uh series most haunted where you were the kind of level-headed one that would look at evidence and say well possibly it's this possibly it's that you know rather than it being the ghost of grandma or whatever but how did that come across did you find any sort of conflict there where people wanted it to be a ghost rather than it possibly might have been something else you mean in terms of a conflict with um the team that i was working with you mean because there was a... maybe the team but also you know the the people that were making the show that that wanted it to be something more because you had um, from my point of view when i'm looking in the, the the position you had was quite a lot of responsibility because you were the kind of the cool-headed one you would look at it from a logical point of view a scientific point of view yeah it's interesting because from a, a media point of view at the time that i was on most haunted and even prior to that there's almost an a regulatory perspective on it is that is that you know the regulatory regulatory body within the uk which is ofcom dictated that there has to be a, a balanced viewpoint yeah and if that balanced viewpoint meant you know somebody get brought onto the show for a few minutes at the end then that's your balance so so from a from a, a tv producers and, and makers point of view they had to have somebody like myself giving an alternative perspective they just had to it's part of the regulation yeah. but in terms of conflict it was interesting no there wasn't a conflict um and the way that there wasn't a conflict was, of course, my voice was heard, but my voice wasn't the main voice. Yeah. You know, the main voice was the spiritualism type approach to ghost hunting was the calling out was the isn't this amazing evidence, all of that, which kind of filled the show as it does with most paranormal shows now. And then the little bit of skepticism and science is shoved in there. But I never had a, I never had an issue with that. I never had an issue with that because you got to remember I was a parapsychologist before yeah, and I am now. So a parapsychologist before the show and after the show. And so, you know, people would never get to hear about the parapsychological viewpoint. They would never hear about that before. Whereas the show went out to the masses and here I was being able to 
give my perspective and teach people about the science and you know why do you use an emf meter for example yeah. or what is infrasound those sorts of things and i would never get a forum to be able to do that i'd be stuck in my academic scientific ivory tower and nobody would hear unless they'd read a little article that i'd written or you know read a scientific paper so i didn't mind that i was my voice was brief but also i was part of those the the three people that fronted the show effectively it was yeah. a vet show and she did an amazing job at steering the show and then there was a medium and there was my perspective so even though you might not have heard my voice so much i was always there even in the shadows yeah. talking about the science the conflict with the rest of the team no there was never conflict we got on famously well um i guess the only conflict was the frustration that yeah. came from Yvette and some of the others that I was constantly talking about the skeptical perspective, especially when it came to things like knocking sounds. You know, if they're doing a seance and there was knocking sounds, I would always say, right, put the camera under the table. Okay, you know, if there's no knocking, then remove the camera. Oh, the knocking starts, now let's put the camera under again. Yeah. And then put other controls into place, you know, remove remove your shoes and socks and then I'll be convinced that there's nothing, nothing dodgy going on. So there was frustration in that respect that that i could not be swayed i could not be persuaded or convinced there's only very rare moments where i'd go now that's interesting and i'm not going to say that i could easily explain it away the vast majority of the time i was constantly pushing the scientific skeptical perspective and that was frustrating for the other team the rest of the team but um it was their own personal belief you know and and i stuck to my role and they stuck to their roles and and we did we got on famously yeah, I, I think with uh, ghost hunting, investigating places that have a, a parent, paranormal phenomenon or any phenomenon that's going on, I think you have to leave, uh, like I, I've told other people, if somebody tells me to go somewhere, I don't tell me anything about that place. Let me go there and experience what I experience. And then if I come back to you and say, you know, I saw a, a knight on a horse walk through a wall, then and then they say, yeah, that's what happens. Then, you know, there's something possibly that's happening there. But what that might be, uh, I have no clue. I don't know. Um, so what I was going to ask you now was, because you've been to many places that have, you know, alleged phenomenon and things going on, when have you been on maybe or on location or you've been to a place where you've had something happen and you thought, now that is just that is just weird? Actually, a number of times, and people might be surprised by that, given my somewhat sceptical perspective. Uh, but I call them head-scratching moments yeah. more than anything else. So couple of examples so um there was a haunted nightclub which is now closed down in birkenhead which is um in the northwest of england and there a group of people sat around a seance table and they started to feel a little bit odd and it, the only way i can describe it is almost like a fog of cold air i picked up on the thermal imager that surrounded them yeah. and stayed with them for the duration of the seance and then when they said oh it feels like we're not getting any more communication with the spirit they were saying it as that fog of cold air kind of dissipated and went across the floor. Now, that's an odd moment because you're getting people reporting their subjective experience. It feels like there's something around us. It feels like there's a spirit. And you get that in tandem with what I picked up on the thermal imager. Mm. So that was kind of viewing that. I've also had you know, an odd experience um, in SS Great Britain. A ship that was moored in Bristol where I just felt spooked 
you know, I wish there was a better word for it, but everybody who's had that experience knows exactly what I mean. You just feel spooked. It just feels odd more yeah. than anything else. Um, the issue, the reason why I call them head scratching moments is a lot of these incidences and ghost hunting generally, the experiences are fleeting. Yeah. They're spontaneous, so you cannot predict them, and they're fleeting, as in they're very, they can be very brief. So they're gone. There's, there's very little you can do in terms of going back and analysing what it is. I can only speculate about the possible explanations for those experiences, but that's all it is, is speculation. I can't, even if I went back and measured the environment in either of those particular locations, I'm measuring it years later. That doesn't give me an accurate measurement of what the environment was like at that point where I had the experience that might explain it. Yeah. So it's frustrating, but it's also exciting. That's why I love it. Yeah. I was going to say that uh, SS Great Britain, uh, I remember going there as a child um, and going around it. And of course, uh, I think um, we did a, we did a, uh, did a show on it. Uh, I think it was quite a few episodes back now. We talked about some of the uh, phenomenon that had happened there. And uh, I got a message from someone who'd done a ghost hunt there. And they said that they'd experienced uh, stuff on the, uh, on the ship as well so yeah that's uh you know good considering how old it is and how many people have been on it and maybe but moving on to something uh that i i really want to ask you uh is the stone tape theory where can is it possible that our emotions in some way or something traumatic can imprint on its environment now i i did a um a show recently also regarding a, a pub in the Prince of Wales pub in Kemfig in, in Wales, uh, where I played the original recordings that were captured. And obviously some of those sounds that they captured could be put down to electronic feedback because obviously they were put in 20,000 volts for a wall. But some of those sounds that they captured are completely bizarre. You can hear people talking and what sounds like televisions and things being moved around and stuff. What, what's your thought on that whole kind of stone tape well, I think it's a, a lovely idea, and it's got an element of it's got an element of logic to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still a theory. Let's just be clear: stone tape theory. Yeah. It's it's you know difficult to test it. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to test it. But I, I like the idea, the fact that the fabric of the building effectively retains an imprint of a past event. Yeah, and there's something that happens either the individual, the living individual or something about the environment triggers a replay yeah. of that particular imprint. And that's a fundamental you know, um, premise behind what stone tape theory is. And I think where you've got hauntings, where people report exactly that, a replay of an event where there's no interaction, it feels like that's a you know, a really good viable explanation for what's going on, albeit a paranormal explanation. And whether it's seeing an event or, like you said with the Prince of Wales pub, hearing yeah. noises from the past, there's some sort of imprint of that sound on there. You know, it feels like it's it's an, an interesting, if not, it kind of makes sense yeah. in a way. You know, and it's probably one of the few theories that make sense when we start to look at haunting phenomena generally. Um, the only problem is, like I said, it's still theory. Yeah. Difficult, difficult to test. But certainly it's got precursors for it going back over a hundred years. People talk about it as being, you know, originating with Nigel Neal and a BBC play 
stone tape theory back in the 70s. Yeah. But there's actually precursors to it. There's the, the water tape theory that was about 40 years before then. And there's other examples of scientists talking about the atmosphere or something in the atmosphere capturing an imprint and then it replaying it at a later date. You know, you've got yeah. countless examples even before Lethbridge and the water tape theory. So, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we have the, the English Civil War, the, the replay of the battle uh, that people were seeing in the sky and hearing the sounds and, uh, you know, many witnesses. What that was, who knows? I don't know. Uh, we have to kind of think about maybe playing a little bit of folklore there, maybe something like that. But uh, it, it, I think that the whole the, the stone tape theory, uh, I've, I, it's always fascinated me. I've always had an interest in, in that kind of stuff where people say, well, okay, um maybe if it's uh if it's a ghost uh why don't you see uh why don't you see cavemen ghosts why don't you see dinosaurs walking around and, and i okay i can sort of uh put something to the mix with that and maybe maybe if you're uh we are all energy and we pass on and we become you know out there in the ether maybe that energy doesn't last forever maybe it does dissipate over time and that we have cases where people see apparitions and they say, oh, you know, somebody walking somewhere. And over years, it gets fainter and fainter and lesser and lesser. But they still hear the sound. So maybe there is some way that we imprint on our environment if we do the same thing enough or are kind of emotionally charged at the time. I don't know. I think, yeah, I think that's a very good point. You know, when the, the possible dissipation of that spiritual energy over time. Yeah could be responsible for the fact that we don't get those you know early historical um uh, figures showing themselves but you know you do get hauntings of ancient cultures yeah you know you go to various parts of egypt and people report seeing pharaohs and various other you know hauntings and associated with that particular culture there are even reports of um um figures and uh um, particular interactions with ancient greek culture but also let, let's remember, if people are talking about cavemen and dinosaurs, I don't know if it has any impact, but you're talking about a world that looked very, very different than it does today. You know, with plate, plate tectonics, you've got a complete change in the landscape. So if you're starting to think about it in that way, potentially that might have an impact in terms of why we don't necessarily see the ghosts of these, you know, uh, older beings and cavemen etc it could be just simply down to a change of landscape it's the whole idea that you know you could have a haunting associated with a particular building if that building is pulled down and something else is put in its place or nothing is put in its place are you still going to see the haunting yeah now, i know there's some classic cases where that's true but also you get cases where it's not true you know you get some lovely examples um, um, you know, recently, actually, of a number of prisons that have been closed down and converted by developers into flats, prisons where people have reported haunting activity. And actually, in the transitional period between it closing and being opened as, as luxury flats, you get ghost hunters going in and reporting phenomena. Yeah. But then you get people moving into the flat and not not everybody in those flats reporting any ghostly activity. So it's an interesting one. So uh, what's your thoughts on... Uh... EVP and ITC where do you where do you kind of uh what's your you know what's your realm there you have you ever sort of done any sort of research into it I mean I I did some EVP research about 20 years ago and I was quite into it and I did a, quite a lot of recording and I did get some responses and clear voices to clearly that 
there was no one else around at the time. Um, but what's your what's your feelings about EVP and that? I I love EVP, so it's not it's not necessarily something that's in the domain of parapsychology, even though we you know we're interested in haunting phenomena, but it's yeah. only a small percentage of parapsychologists worldwide that have an interest in haunting phenomena anyway. Capturing EVPs, I love for two reasons. Number one, I love the history of it. I love the fact that you've got an approach to capturing spirit voices that goes back now about 70 years, 70 plus years. Yeah. It's starting with Raw Deve and Jurgensen and these, you know, Jurgensen, especially these individuals who were actually recording for different reasons, recording bird calls. And then when playing back the recordings, then they started to hear kind of murmurings and voices. And yeah. That's a bit odd. And then, and then, you know, we're able to capture that. And I think the current, it, it would be beneficial for current researchers and ghost hunters to look back at some of the early history of EVP to understand, you know, how it was captured and that it was captured on big reel-to-reel yeah. recorders. It doesn't necessarily have to be digital recorders as we use now. So that's an interesting part of it. I love the history. I love the development. I love the development of, you know, organizations like um, the American Association for EVP and, and various names of individuals that did years and years of research in this. So I love that. I love the beguiling, tangible nature that of that evidence that you see on ghost hunts, that people can be there with a little digital dictaphone yeah. or even their smartphone now, questioning, leave a gap and then play it back and you get some sort of sound. So I love it. I'm a big fan. The issue, of course, me is audio perception, where you get a very, very clear voice, very clear, and there's no debate at all what that voice is. If we're sure that it's not some sort of interference, then then what is going on? You know, really question what is going on. I get sent recordings like that, and I have to question it because I'm sent the recording, so I don't know who was in the room or, you know, what, what was going on at the time. But where you're in a situation where you plain as day hear a recording, I think it's fascinating. Those circumstances where it's debatable what's being said, I've got real issue with that. I mean, we know in psychology the whole idea of apophenia and pareidolia, that we find a pattern in randomness, that we're going to hear names. And you see it in some classic shows now. I think we might have even done it on Most Haunted occasionally, where you play this kind of static-filled recording and say oh they're saying get out and as soon as you see that it says get out you can hear it but that's that's pareidolia there's nothing more yeah. than that so i am a fan i hope you can realize that but also there's the there is a slight skeptical side to it as well it's interesting you say that it's uh a late friend of mine uh you might be familiar with him, lou gentilly he was uh oh, yes yeah he he i mean he had his like, radio show and he used to do lots of investigations and he was a a real advocate of uh evp and uh some of the sounds and stuff that he would record were was completely bizarre i mean uh, i it was just growls and grunts and shouts and way off the scale what what they were i don't know but in, interesting that you say about us hearing stuff and the way that our brain is wired that you would have uh you uh, you get it in the summertime when you put the fan on and you think who's having a party where's all that drum where's all that noise coming from and then you turn the fan off and the sound's gone and you turn the fan on and then the noise comes back it's that kind of your brain sort of trying to make sense of 
that ambient sound that's going on. Exactly. Your brain, your brain trying to make sense of it, and you're absolutely right. And I was quite fortunate to be involved in Most Haunted, but all of the TV shows, and there's been countless. Yeah. And I'm always having this conversation every time I speak to a sound recordist. Mm-hmm. You know, the sound, the sound man, the sound person on those shows, and I say, you have got the most amazing recording equipment. Have you ever captured anything like this? Have you ever, ca- you know, hit? Yeah. No. No. And I've never met a sound man on, on these shows. And, and I'm, I'm particular about these individuals who are not ghost hunters. I'm talking about people that are part of film and TV yeah. crews and saying to them, have you ever captured anything on your devices, any voices? And I haven't met one yet yeah. that said yes. I, I think, yeah, it's uh, it's usually on lower grade equipment that you have this phenomenon. And I think that, uh, well, we could go back and say, well, yeah, I mean, in the olden days, in the analog days, they would use uh, reel to reel and, and to capture their, you know, voices and stuff. But it, it's still, it's a different, you know, it's we're in a different era now. We're in this kind of digital era. And I was going to ask you, uh, what's your thought? Because obviously we are moved from uh, analog audio from, you know, analog style taking pictures and stuff we've gone to digital as well what's your feeling on uh or um very skeptical i you know i know that um uh, one of the issues with orbs was that it's a development of digital cameras you know and effectively we're seeing a very good viable explanation in terms of the ccd chip within digital cameras yeah. you know that it's basically it's interpreting with a low pixelation versus a, a regular film camera the low pixelation of the camera means that we're getting that light effect we do get that and it's a very good explanation where it's, it was almost like it's interpreting either the flash bouncing off something or it's just interpreting an anomaly within the photograph which could be dust it could be moisture it could be an insect anything like that and it causes that light anomaly yeah and it is a part of the digital part of the part of the digital world we see them a lot the interesting thing though is that in the past and i say in the past over 10 15 years ago i would have people come up to me and show me their orb photos and say kieran dr kieran o'keefe could you please explain you know this orb photo is is this paranormal and i'd go through this whole diatribe of explaining what an orb was down to the ccd chip and as i was saying it i could see kind of the world view and and uh, the enthusiasm just completely disappear from the person's <laughs> face almost as though when i gave the explanation yeah. they just walked away with hunched shoulders and i'd broken them yeah. genuinely broken them so now when people come up to me you know and they say kieran i've got this orb photo what do you think now my response is yes it's an orb yeah and i, and I don't say anything else because yeah you're you playing know, it safe. it's it's but it's also there's there's a, a lesson there for me as a scientist i can talk about alternative explanations for things but i've got to be somewhat respectful of people's belief if they genuinely believe that that orb in the photograph is the first stage of the manifestation of spirit of a departed relative then, then it's wrong of me to go barreling in, two guns blazing, and saying there's an obvious explanation for this. This is the CCD chip in a digital camera. There's no way that's a spirit. Yeah. You know, whereas there's a way of delivering that explanation, which I've learned over the years through Most Haunted and through lecturing at university as well. There's a way of delivering that alternative explanation so that the person can still make up their own mind 
but they're not offended and they're not ruined or broken by Dr. Kieran O'Keefe's explanations of orbs, which I did in the past. I think you've got to be, when you you do investigations, you've got to be willing to know that sometimes something isn't, might, you know, most probably isn't or may not be what you think it is. Um, for, for example, uh, an interesting thing that happened to me was three days after my late father passed away, I clearly heard him uh, call my name in the same room that I was in as if he was stood in the room. I don't know what that was. It, it totally knocked me for six. I'm like, wow, I was wide awake. I was just chilling out in a room and it was as if he was in the room with me. Uh, I don't know what that was. Completely bizarre. So, I mean, you know, you've done a lot of ghost hunts. You've been to a lot of places. What, what, how do you think that ghost hunting has changed in the last sort of 15 to 20 years because now it's all kind of very gadget driven as where back in the day it was a little bit more simplified yeah i guess that's the that's the only fundamental change is that we're seeing a lot more gadgets and a lot more digital gadgets and a lot more devices that have been specifically developed for ghost hunting without any scientific backing to them so stuff like ghost box and ovilus etc so we're seeing that we're seeing new gadgets I think there's a bigger question here, which is how much has ghost hunting changed? Yeah. And you can go back to kind of the 18, 1880s and Balecki House, kind of one of the first documented ghost hunts, as uh-huh. written down, and go, to be honest, there hasn't been much change. There really hasn't. We're seeing a lot more because it's televised. We're seeing a lot more, uh, you know, digital technology involved in ghost hunting. But actually, in terms of a method and an approach, we haven't seen any change at all. And you still get different types. So you still get individuals that will kind of reject the environmental stuff and the gadgets and just go, no, we're going to just call out. We're going to use seances or Ouija boards or use mediums. And you'll see others who will just use the gadgets and the tech and focus on EVP and ghost boxes and set up a, you know, a um, REM pod, various things like this. They're set up in the hope of capturing evidence where there's almost like a disconnect going. If we capture the evidence, it's a lot more interesting because the gadget has captured it, not necessarily us. It's almost like we're witnessing. Yeah. The so you're getting those two approaches. And then the majority, the majority of ghost hunters and ghost hunter groups will do a mix of both. But, you know, some calling out, some gadgets, maybe a seance or table tipping, that sort of thing. It, it might feel like it's changed. But I look at the last 120 years and I go, actually, the actual approach hasn't changed. As a fundamental approach to ghost hunting, it hasn't changed. So uh, as we're uh, rapidly coming to the end of this episode, I um, I have got a couple of questions I want to throw at you. And I'm, I'm going to be interested to hear what your... Uh, what your thoughts are them are on them um so if i was to ask you uh what how would you describe what a possible ghost might be what 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 would be your answer what what would be uh the way that you would sort of uh process that well the way i would answer it would be a ghostly experience can be any sensory experience involving um a somebody who's departed but also actually a living person so it's a sensory experience which has no natural explanation really um and that's for the paranormal side i guess a simple explanation let me backtrack a bit is it is a sensory experience in which we are in contact with something we can't explain 
Interesting. And my second question, which is kind of part B to my first question, with the uh, poltergeist phenomenon, do you think that it is a and something that we all have when we're young, we have this kind of ability, this psychonesis, this mind over matter, that as we get older and we become educated to the world, that there's a possibility that we lose this ability uh, or do you think that there's some sort of outside force, you know, playing its role? That's a really good question because you're tapping into a lot of different things. Number one, in terms of children, why children seem to experience more of yeah. this stuff than adults. So there's a possibility that we lose something as we become more closed-minded and rational. Yeah. Even even currently believers will have gone through that stage of, of being completely, completely open-minded and completely ignore any rational or scientific or closed-minded perspective on what's happening. So there is that potential, yes. Within parapsychology, we talk about, you know, psychokinetic effects being responsible for poltergeist activity, but we're also open to the possibility of spirit phenomena causing the poltergeist activity. So it could be one or the other. You know, we, we, there's no hard evidence, I think, for either, but it can be one or the other. But I like what you're saying in terms of there is that greater potential for children to have this experience and it's because of that mindset yeah effectively we're kind of uh well, i don't want to use the word brainwashed but we are kind of conditioned when we get a little bit older we join to you know we go into the schooling system we're sort of taught to think a perfect you know a way a particular way and that as you get older you're as a child you 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 lose those kind of innocence and that kind of mindset of anything is possible and when you're in the Wait, by the time you leave school and you go to get a job, it's, uh, well, you know, it's it, things are, it, it, this is life and this is the way it's going to be. <laughs> it's not only that, it's your, absolutely, it's your family upbringing too. Yeah. So you mentioned about school, but if you imagine you have a ghostly experience and you tell your parents or tell your family, whatever their responses can potentially dictate yes, true. how you yeah. capture that experience, but also then your viewpoint going on in life, if they're very quick to say, oh, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's a ghost. Oh, little Jimmy had a ghostly experience. You feel positive about it. You're yeah. happy to report those experiences. If immediately is, oh, don't be silly, then you're not going to report those experiences again. You're going to think about it. Or if the response is, oh, he's got an imaginary companion. You know, he's got a, a you know an imaginary friend. Different sort of response. Yeah. It very much depend, depends on the response that you get at an early age, how you develop those beliefs. Yep. Uh imaginary friends whole can of worms i had a friend when i was a little when i was a little kitty uh who had an imaginary friend and he would talk to him and he would say oh he's coming with us and uh, we would go places and i could never see this imaginary friend and he used to get so angry that i couldn't see him and i'm like thinking i don't know what he's looking at i don't know what's going on there it's he's got a friend and i can't see him uh, and he's always with him well watch this space later on this year there's an article coming out um, in, I think, a psychological reports authored by me and a couple of other authors up in Manchester, exactly that, looking at imaginary friends and our accounts of imaginary friends Interesting. and how a lot of the characteristics of them feel like hauntings. Yeah. You know, so look out for that. Yeah, I was going to say, it. maybe it's the person that's being haunted, you know, maybe they're haunting themselves, maybe it's connected to the poltergeist phenomenon. Uh, it's just, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, um, it's massive. Uh, anyway, Kieran. So yes, we have got to the end. Um, as once again, um, remind us about your book because it's uh, it came out today, didn't it? Yes, it came out today. We're sitting here, what seventh uh, of July? It came out today. So it's a book called 
uh, ghosted and like i said it's yeah exploring the haunting reality of paranormal encounters um i have it all of my social media accounts will be announcing it i've got a link tree link which takes people to the ordering page yep. as well for it but yeah lots of information lots of information there about organizations as well like the society for psychical research and asap and various other organizations that people are genuinely interested in knowing more we're directing them to people that they can find out more as well so yeah hopefully it'll be successful but like i said it's a way of um, ghost hunters and members of the public learning more about the science but not written in too scientific a, a a more accessible approach that's excellent well i'm going to definitely get uh, that link to uh, go out with this podcast so people know about it so no worries there uh, and once again kieran thanks very much for coming on this episode totally fascinating conversation and hopefully uh, we'll get you back at, at some point or even get you on a live stream because that would be even uh, better to get some uh, the listeners asking you direct questions because that, that's always fun but uh yeah so once again Thanks very much. Uh, thanks to all the listeners. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you very much. Love to come back and lovely questions. Great chatting with you.